Grab your Bibles, join me in Hebrews chapter 10, if you will, Hebrews chapter number 10. If you have a prayer bulletin, we have an outline there on the back. We'd love for you to follow along, join us accordingly. And uh, Brother Dave, the uh, card's going to come down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, I'd love for you to grab one and follow along. I'm excited about getting into Hebrews chapter 10 and kind of turn the page, at least on chapters, if we might put it that way. And uh, we're inching closer to a very practical part of Hebrews here. And uh, so I'm excited about getting into chapter 10 because chapter 10 is a fantastic chapter. It is very much the climax of the doctrinal presentation by Paul uh, of why we should have faith in Christ. Okay, uh, why Christ, this is all about Christ, why right? he is better, he is, as our title of our series says, he is supreme, he is superior to all things and everything, Old Testament, everything in, in, in the Jewish faith, he, we've seen that, angels, prophets, uh, the, the um, men of old, Moses, and those folks. And we're getting to this chapter 10, which is the climax, and uh, it is exciting as he builds that, because then he enters into, we know chapter 11, it tells us what faith looks like. What is faith? Substance things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is faith in practice. He gives demonstration. It, the just shall live by faith here in the end of chapter 10. And he launches into a very practical outflow of the theological doctrinal consideration that we have seen from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10. And so it's, a, it's an exciting time to be studying Hebrews for you and I. And I'm excited about getting in here into chapter 10. And uh, in this first part of chapter 10, he pre- presents a very logical, a very doctrinal um, outline of the implications of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring that to a close, but yet before he does so, he, he gives us some very good practical impl- implications and some theological and doctrinal truths that I hope you'll not grab hold of. Let's look in verse 1. I'm going to do something we don't often do. We're going to read the entirety of the passage, verse 1 of chapter 10, all the way through verse 18. I want us to get the bird's eye view, if we might put it that way. Obviously, we will not cover it all tonight. It'll take us a few weeks or a couple weeks at least uh, uh, to delve into all of it. But look at verse number one. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can neither with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Question mark. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a, a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come parenthetical phrase in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will O God above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not neither hadst the pleasure therein which are offered by the law then he said lo I come to do thy will O God he taketh away the first that he may establish the second By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. 
from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. I would encourage you in the mind, in, in the thoughts of your mind, put a little asterisk there by that verse. We'll kind of reference it. You'll see a comparison to it here tonight. Verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. At the crux or at the focal point of this passage is verse 12. Look there one more time. Let's just see it, verse 12. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. His was a singular sacrifice. One of the, the, the main points, one of the, the, the truths that he's pushing here at the beginning was this simple reality um, in this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, excuse me, behind it by a couple clicks, okay? Here in verse 10, the, verse 12, the focal point, it was a singular sacrifice. And as that verse demonstrates for us, we call it what? The finished work of Christ on the cross. Why? Because that single sacrifice was for all people, for all sin, forever, for uh, for all sin for all people forever and i i love that description that's why we call it a finished work yes he said it is finished on the cross certainly but what was he describing it's done for all people all sin forever and what a glorious truth that is tonight uh, that he has paid that uh, penalty that payment for you and i there's a story told about a little chapel or church in england and of years gone by and as part of its structure, it had an arch, and uh, whether that was through which the people who were worshiping there enter or what, but it was part of the structure, and, and on that arch, they had a statement engraved there or chiseled out, and it was simply this, we preach Christ crucified. Much as Paul has done here, and certainly is the focus of this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. For many years, in that little chapel, in that church, in that small village, Godly men of God preached that truth. They preached a crucified Savior as the only means for salvation. But as the generation of godly preachers passed away, a generation arose that considered the cross to be unnecessary. They considered the cross of Christ to be antiquated, to, uh, to, to mean little, to be outdated. Even some of them believed it somewhat to be repulsive. So they began to preach a salvation that was gained by following Christ's example rather than by his blood. They simply dismissed the necessity of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It became of little importance to them. What was interesting that uh, as that happened within the church building, on the outside of the church building, as things were maybe neglected a little bit, there was some ivy that began to grow. The ivy grew, and it grew up the side of that building and onto that arch. And before they realized it, the ivy had covered up a word that represented well what was happening in that church. We preach Christ was all you could see. The word crucified had been covered up by the, the ivy. More years passed. The church decided that, uh, no, uh, you know, we need to... It isn't enough just to preach Jesus Christ. It isn't enough to, to preach the Bible. We don't need to confine or limit our message to those things. 
So the preachers began giving sermons and discourses on social issues, on politics, on philosophy, on current trends, and many other things, whatever happened to spark their interest. And so within the walls of that church and chapel, you seldom heard the name Jesus Christ. You seldom heard the truths of the Scripture. And lo and behold, before they realized that ivy had grown again, and ivy had covered another word up. And above that arch in front of that church, all it said was this, we preach. There's a reason in Corinthians that Paul said, I would have preached before you only Jesus Christ crucified. Why? It's the heart of the gospel. Without that realization, without that truth, we have no gospel. You see, my friend, that is uh, what Paul centers on here and in many of his epistles, many of his letters, the realization that you and I can do nothing about our sin debt. Doesn't the hymn say it well? Jesus paid it all. You and I could do nothing. He did it all. That's really Paul's point of this passage. He paid it all. In fact, I would call Hebrews chapter 10 a a very rich theological truth of Christ's singular sacrifice. In fact, maybe it would be more appropriate to say truths, plural. Because there's much given and much emphasized here before us. And what's interesting is this. As Paul writes the book of Hebrews, and we talked early on and many, many moons ago about when this was written, But in that latter part of that first century, as Paul writes the book of Hebrews, this crucifixion was not a recent development. Oh, certainly it had just happened 35 years before, 30 years before, whatever the case may be, 40 years. Yet, within the pages of Scripture, his sacrifice, his crucifixion, was not just a recent development. In fact, if you and I, as we have studied the Old Testament, we can see the reality of that coming sacrifice displayed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. You see, as you and I look at it, we understand the Old Testament law, we look at the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and so forth, we realize that it is always pointed to Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe for sake of our outline in the days to come, we would say it pointed to it, but it also pictures And so you see, Roman numeral number one, the single sacrifice pictured. The singular sacrifice pictured. Look again at verse one, if you will. Divert your gaze there with me, if you might. It says this, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Let's stop there because immediately something catches our eye. Something you and I have seen before. First of all, we see that he uses a very familiar word here in Hebrews. We've seen it at least twice before. It is the word shadow. He says it is a shadow. The law having a shadow. The things that made up the law. The things that made up the Levitical priesthood. The things that made up the sacrifices. These are shadows of something. We saw it in chapter 8 verse 5. Chapter 10 and verse 1 likewise here. And uh, uh, other passages here in Hebrews we see it. Secondly, we see a very familiar passage. We dwelled on it just a few weeks ago or a few Wednesdays ago, and that was the phrase, good things to come. You remember verse 11 of chapter 9 as we just perused and looked at in our previous studies, and 
that, that statement, this is good things to come. Christ is a, a, a pointing to good things to come. In the Old Testament, the law was pointing to good things to come. The shadow of the real thing. And we've studied that word, so we're not going to spend a lot of time as we looked at it before, but we, we do to remind ourselves. You see what it says, a shadow of the very image. In other words, the real thing as we looked at before and considered. We talked before about how a shadow lacks the complete substance of the real thing. It pales in comparison to the very image, as Paul would put it here, of the original. Uh, For illustration's sake and for you and I to to understand that, let me ask you a question. All right, here's your quiz. It's an IQ IQ quiz, okay? So hope you do well, all right? Let's check it out, all right? Uh, What is this a shadow of? Oh, good, excellent. See, you're already at 100%. Praise the Lord, okay? Now, let me ask you this. If that's the shadow of a key, can that shadow unlock that door or that hole? No, it sure can't. It sure can. A shadow can't do that. that the real thing, the substance can't. That can unlock the door or whatever the hole is for. It, it can unlock it. Let me ask you this, okay? Question number two. You're doing well. Let's keep it going. What is this a shadow of? A car. Excellent. Very good. So It's a shadow of a car, right? Let me ask you. Could you hop in there and drive that home tonight? No, you couldn't. You look kind of funny sitting there on the ground and trying to get in that shadow. Right? It, you can't drive it home. It's, it has nothing. It can offer nothing like the real thing. It, it's, it's just a shadow. All right, last question. Well, actually not two more. But anyway, next to last. What is this a shadow of? A tree, you're right. Could you go climb that? That'd be fun to watch, wouldn't it? <laughs> Encourage somebody to go climb that shadow. No, you can't climb it. Not like you can climb a tree. No way. You can't do that. It's a shadow of the real thing. It's a, it doesn't have the substance of the real thing. Let me ask you this. Can a shadow of a real meal, dinner, can that feed a hungry man? Well, no, certainly not. That can't. And uh, I mean, you, if it's just a shadow of the meal, I can't do anything for his hunger. So let me ask you this. And this would be Paul's point here in this passage. Can the thing that's a shadow of the cross take away your sins? And the answer is no way. No way. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, can take away sins. Just like those shadows have nothing of the substance of the real thing, so those sacrifices of old and, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood could do nothing to take care of our sins. See, it's a good reminder that the Holy Spirit puts here before us in this choice use of the word shadow. But what's interesting, and certainly that kind of continues what we've already seen about the word shadow, there is a positive element that comes up here in this chapter about the word shadow. Now think for a moment, is there anything positive about a shadow? What, what, what is the good that a shadow can do? Well, Paul is actually pointing to something here. It has a benefit. What is that benefit? Well, a shadow is a proclamation that something is there. It is an indicator of something real being present, that there is substance to something there uh, before us. Think about it with me, if you will, in context. Okay. If, you, if I were to see your shadow tonight, I know that you have to be real. In fact, I would know that you were close by me somewhere. And uh, um, why are people scared of shadows? Because they represent something real, right? And uh, there's something making a shadow. You can't have a shadow without something real of substance. 
And so therefore, a shadow in its positive element, its positive benefit tells us there's something real here. It may not be this thing, the shadow isn't that, but it's, it's here. It's coming close. It's in close proximity. So as we think in terms of that, those shadows of the Old Testament literally had a divine purpose because they were indicators they proclaimed something every sacrifice that took place in israel and every sacrifice excuse me sacrifice throughout the old testament that took place was an indicator it was a proclamation of the real thing the very image as verse one puts it that it's close at hand so what is the divine purpose well at its very base we'd say it's simply this its purpose was to create expectancy in God's people. That they would yearn for, that they would look for the perfect Lamb of God. That they would be desirous of something that could actually take away their sins. That was promised since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The promise of a deliverer, the promise of a savior, the promise of one who would come and uh, take care of the penalty and payment of their sins. So as we think of a shadow and its positive elements, we would say it this threefold. It is preparatory. It helps to prepare, as certainly those sacrifices did in the Old Testament. It is preliminary. It comes first in this case. And certainly in the Old Testament, it was preliminary in the paving the way, shall we say, and it is anticipatory. A shadow makes you anticipative. Have you ever jumped at a shadow? Have you ever seen a, somebody, a child, see a shadow and they think it's something that, you know, it certainly is something, but they think it's something else. And boy, uh, anticipatory. A shadow is that way. So when you and I, when the Jews were, when we read of it and the Jews practiced the, uh, the sacrifices, it was to build anticipata- anticipation, expectancy. And yet here the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you and I, he's wanting the reader to know that these sacrifices were but shadows of the real thing. How is that? Well, here's what he says. Letter A, we are told that they were repetitive. They were repetitive. Look again at verse 1, the second part that we have not really dwelled upon. They can never, with those sacrifices which they offered, here's this terminology, year by year, continually make the comers, and the term in verse 2 is worshipers, make the comers or worshipers thereunto perfect so it informs us that the sacrifices of the old testament certainly something we know they were repetitive in nature they were repeated often do you realize that it is estimated that during the passover that over three hundred thousand lambs would be slain in one week during any given Passover, the Jews recognized, especially while they're in Jerusalem in the temple, over 300,000 lambs would be killed. In fact, what's interesting, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were canals that were found that were designed, what the archaeologists believe, and even theologians. The canals were designed to carry the blood out of the temple and joined into the brook Kidron to take the blood away. You can imagine how much blood that would be from 300,000 lambs and such. And and just the continual aspect, the repetitive nature of these sacrifices time and time and time again. So let's understand, when he writes the book of Hebrews, he is talking to a group of people that is used to the death of animals to atone for their sins, the covering up, and the blood flowing freely. 
And so Paul is now expressing to them, here's where Christ is so much better. Because as verse 12 says, it is a singular sacrifice. And my friend, there is no expiration on his sacrifice. It is forever. It is for all people. And it is for all sin. Paul is hammering home this point of the failures of the Old Testament in comparison to what you and I have in Jesus Christ. You see the statement here, the fact that they are... Uh, they had to be repeated year after year let the worshipers know something it informed them reminded them of something as we'll talk about here in a moment the repetitive nature that their sin problem was still there it had not been done away with once and for all but it had only been covered temporarily hence the need for it to be repeated so often in fact Paul then asks a rhetorical question, doesn't he? He said, if the worshipers, if the comers had been made perfect, then that was not necessary. The repetitive nature, the repeat of the sacrifices wasn't necessary. Look at verse number two. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Wouldn't they have ended if they could purge the worshiper? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. The guilt could be erased. Would they have stopped if the one who offered the sacrifice was actually purged from their sin by that sacrifice? No more guilt over sin. No more conviction of that sin. The pricking of the heart. And as he alludes to here, the consciousness of sin. The pricking of our conscience. There would no longer be the heavy burden of sin. The the guilt still weighing them down. But he quickly adds verse number 4. Where he makes the point and he simply says this. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins we've seen it before but paul reiterates it that such animal sacrifices were incapable of taking away my sins such truth has inspired the the hymn writers of old and certainly you and i know it well the hymn that asks the question simply this what can wash away my sin what's the next word nothing but the blood of jesus Nothing. Nothing can do it. Not the, the, the blood of bulls and animals. and You name it, that can do nothing. So these sacrifices and their repetition, these sacrifices that had to be repeated, they were an ongoing shadow picturing the real thing to come. He said good things to come. There, there are good things to come. These are a shadow of them. Okay? It's a, it's a picture, it's an uh, a, a indicator, it is a proclamation of the good things to come. Interestingly, verse 3 tells us there's something else. There's something else that these sacrifices did. Look at verse 3. Uh, you may have thought we were skipping it. We're not. We're going back. Verse number 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. Now, they were repetitive. Number two, they were reflective. They were reflective. They were reflective. The word used here is remembrance. One of the more remarkable aspects of the Day of Atonement, there given by God to the Jews and Moses and Aaron, that the Old Testament describes was the part played by a certain goat. As part of the Day of Atonement, the, the procedure, the ceremony and things, there were two goats that were presented before the, the door of the tabernacle. In fact, the, the Bible would describe it in Leviticus that way. Two goats were brought and presented to the Lord in front of the door of the tabernacle. As they were, these two goats were presented as such. Uh, 
um, Aaron, or in later days, the high priest would take the goats, and what's kind of funny is he would cast lots to see which one uh, fulfilled which part of the ceremony. There was one goat that was chosen, and, and he would then be slain for the actual sin offering. His blood applied to the altar and other things and uh, other ways. Uh, he would be the, the sacrificial lamb. He would be the one that would um, be slain for the sins of the nation. But the other goat, he was presented to the Lord alive. And the term used in Leviticus, but given by God even, was the scapegoat. He'd play a very unique role in the ceremony. Remember what Aaron did, and I think this is kind of interesting, and I think Paul knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote Hebrews chapter number 10. Listen carefully. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse number 21 says this, And Aaron shall lay both his hands, and that would obviously indicate the high priest in later years, upon the head of the live goat. And he will confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. That's quite the statement. We're told in the very next verse, verse 22, that the scapegoat would bear all those iniquities into a land uninhabited. In other words, the wilderness be taken, I love how they said a fit man, so that he would return, amen, and uh, take him far enough and so forth. This was the scapegoat. Now, I draw your attention. Did you catch there what's highlighted in the verse, exactly what Aaron did? As he took that lamb, or that goat, excuse me, as he took the goat, would lay his hands upon him and as he did so he would literally recite all the sins of the nation from that year could you imagine what that would have been like to go back over all the times that they failed to follow god oh god forgive us for back there in that month that we did this and and as a nation we failed there and those who didn't do that i mean they would confess the entirety of the sins of the nations literally reflecting upon it what does the verse say in verse three they remember them they had to come back to the realization, boy, we are not done with the sun debt. We still have this sin on our account. And remember this, remember this, we did this, we did this. And it was rehearsed in their ears. They had to reflect on it because, yes, sins had been covered up, but they had not been atoned for, taken care of completely. Each and every year this would happen. Why? Because those sacrifices, verse number four, could never take away the sin. And so they were reminded every year just who they were. It's repeated often as we've seen already. You think every time that Aaron recounted the sins of the people, oh, they would flinch. Oh yeah, he did that. Now my friend, can I just tell you, man, we just back up a second. You remember I told you, pay attention especially to verse number 17 there. You realize what we have in Jesus Christ and their sins in iniquities will I remember how? No more. No more. Yet here in the Old Testament, the reality is every year they were confronted with their sin. Every year they were reminded they had failed. That sin nature was still active. It was going and they were giving into it, submitting to it. It actually puts a different kind of perspective on the Day of Atonement. It was very much a serious reminder to the Jewish people that they still had a sin debt. Sin nature was still there, that, that sin debt, a deep sin problem in their hearts that had not been taken care of yet. 
their conscience was still subject to condemning to guilt. One of the themes in chapter 9 and 10 is Paul would reference several times here conscience, the conscience. They don't have a clear conscience. There's guilt hounding their conscience. Why? Because their sins have not been taken away. Boy, aren't you thankful today that your sins are washed away? Thank God. Jesus Christ has accomplished what no animal sacrifice could ever accomplish. They've been washed away. And yet for these Jews, under this law, the fact is is that for every passing year, they were reminded that their debt was great. Their debt was great. Most of us here would probably know what a uh, promissory note is. And the reality is, and, and by definition and financially, it is a written and signed promise to repay a sum of money in exchange for a loan or other financing. Let's suppose, and just for sake of illustration, let's say that you wanted to take out a loan to do something. Maybe start a business or whatever the case may be. And so you did just that. You went to the bank and you asked to take out a loan. You didn't have enough collateral. You didn't have enough to, uh, to, to warrant it. So they might ask you, do you have someone who can sign for you? Do you have a, a co-signer or somebody that can guarantee a, a guarantor uh, of the loan that you'll pay it back? And Well, you are blessed to have a wealthy friend who will do just that. He'll guarantee the payment of the debt. And so you're able to take out that, uh, that loan. You have that debt, and it comes due in 12 months. But as it comes due, you're unable to pay it. And, on fact, you've even accumulated a little bit more debt. Additional debt you cannot pay. So, um, <laughs> you go to the bank and you ask to take out a, another promissory note added to the original note. Thankfully, your wealthy friend, once again, says that he'll sign the note. He'll guarantee the payment of the debt. But, sadly, it happens even the next year. In, in all honesty, the year after that, the year after that, and the year after that. Instead of paying off the debt, you're just unable to. You can't do it. In fact, you add more debt every year. It just it gets bigger, the debt, and it gets greater. And eventually you come to the realization that y- you can never pay it off. You'll never be able to pay it off. And all you're doing is accumulating more debt year after year after year. But there's good news. Your wealthy friend comes along and he declares that he knows you can't pay your debt. A debt you're adding to each and every year and he declares that he is going to pay it in full once and for all so you can be debt free and my friend that is a beautiful picture of exactly what jesus christ did spiritually for all of us in fact we could think of the old testament all those sacrifices year after year decade after decade century after century were like the sign of the promissory note the adding, uh, accumulating of greater debt till the day came where Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. And my friend, he made provision to pay the entirety of the debt. Once for all. The singular sacrifice. He alone could get us out of debt. Again, if the sacrifices of the Old Testament could have taken care of our sin problem, they could have paid the debt. Verse 2 says what? They would have ceased to be offered. You know, we're neat. The, the bank can't call your loan. It's already been paid for. The bank can't call you up and say, hey, oh, you owe this. No, no, it's been paid for. The reality of this is <laughs> those sacrifices could not do it. Jesus' sacrifices did. 
It's paid in full. But here's the sad reality, and we'll close with it this evening. In the heart and life where Christ's blood has not taken away one's sin by faith in him, there is both guilt and liability that remains the sinner's personal responsibility. It is a solemn reality. It is one that Paul is certainly building up to, and yet it doesn't have to be so for everyone there is not one person who has to enter eternity, stand before the judgment of God, and give account for themselves. Christ has made it possible for his righteousness to put on our account. We don't have to assume the liability. We don't have to assume the guilt. Reality is, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is paid for. Aren't you thankful tonight that Jesus Christ is the real deal? Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ is another picture, another shadow of things to come? But he is the real deal. And my friend, as you and I have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be assured our sins have been washed away. And for that, we ought to be eternally thankful.